Fourteen. Cyanite breaks her toys. Remain at location. Await instructions, reads the telegram from Eumenes. Cyanite offers this to Alabaster wordlessly, and he glances at it and laughs. Well, well, I'm beginning to think you've just earned yourself another ring, Cyanite Origin. Or a death sentence. I suppose we'll see when we get back. They're in their room at the season's end inn, naked after their usual evening fuck. Cyanite gets up, naked and restless and annoyed, to pace around the room's confines. It's a smaller room than the one they had a week ago, since their contract with Alia is now fulfilled, and the comm will no longer pay for their boarding. When we get back, she glares at him as she paces. He is completely relaxed, a long-boned, positive space against the bed's negative whiteness in the dim evening light. She cannot help thinking of the garnet obelisk when she looks at him. He is just as should not be, just as not quite real, just as frustrating. She cannot understand why he's not upset. What is this remain at location bullshit? Why won't they let us come back? He tisks at her. Language? You were such a proper thing back at the fulcrum. What happened? I met you. Answer the question. Maybe they want to give us a vacation. Alabaster yawns and leans over to take a piece of fruit from the bag on the nightstand. They've been buying their own food for the past week. At least he's eating without being reminded now. Boredom is good for him. What does it matter whether we waste our time here or on the road back to Eumenes, Cyan? At least here, we can be comfortable. Come back to bed. She bares her teeth at him. No, he sighs. To rest. We've done our duty for the night. Earth fires. Do you want me to leave for a while so you can masturbate? Will that put you in a better mood? It would, actually. But she won't admit that to him. She does come back to the bed, finally, for lack of anything better to do. He hands her an orange slice, which she accepts, because they're her favorite fruit and they're cheap here. There's a lot to be said for living in a coaster, calm. She's thought more than once since coming here. Mild weather, good food, low cost of living, meeting people from every land and region as they flow through the port for travel and trade. And the ocean is a beautiful, entrancing thing. She has stood at the window and stared out at it for hours. If not for the tendency of coaster comms to be wiped off the map every few years by tsunami, well, I just don't understand she says, for what feels like the 10,000th time. Baster's probably getting tired of her complaining, but she's got nothing else to do, so he'll have to endure it. Is this some kind of punishment? Was I not supposed to find a giant floating whatever the rust, hidden at the bottom of a harbor during a routine coral clearing job? She throws up her hands, as if anyone could have anticipated that. Most likely, Alabaster says. They want you on hand 
for whenever the geomasts arrive, in case there's more potential business for the fulcrum in it. He said this before, and she knows it's probably true. Geomasts have already been converging on the city, in fact, and archaeomasts, and lorists, and biomasts, and even a few doctors who are concerned about the effect that an obelisk so close will have on Alia's populace. And the charlatans and cranks have come too, of course. Metalorists and astronomists and other junk science practitioners. Anyone with a bit of training or a hobby from every calm in the quartant and neighboring ones. The only reason cyanide and alabaster have even gotten a room is that they're the ones who discovered the thing, and because they got in early. Otherwise, every inn and lodging house in the quartant is full to brimming. No one's really cared about the damn obelisks before now. Then again, no one's ever seen one hovering so close, clearly visible, and stuffed with a dead stone eater above a major population center. But beyond interviewing Cyanite for her perspective on the raising of the obelisk, she's already starting to wince every time a stranger is introduced to her as some fool, innovator, wherever. The Mests haven't wanted anything from her. Which is good, since she's not authorized to negotiate on behalf of the fulcrum. Alabaster might be, but she doesn't want him bargaining with anyone for her services. She doesn't think he'd intentionally sign her up for anything she doesn't want. He's not a complete ass. It's just the principle of the thing. And worse... She doesn't quite believe Alabaster. The politics of being left here don't make sense. The fulcrum should want her back in the equatorials, where she can be interviewed at seventh by imperial scholars, and where the seniors can control how much the mests have to pay for access to her. They should want to interview her themselves, and better understand that strange power she's now felt three times, and which she finally understands is somehow coming from obelisks. And the guardians should want to talk to her. They always have their own secrets to keep. It disturbs her most of all that they've shown no interest. Alabaster has warned her not to talk about this part of it. No one needs to know that you can connect to the obelisks, he said, the day after the incident. He was still weak then barely able to get out of bed after his poisoning. Turns out, he'd been too orogenically exhausted to do anything when she raised the obelisk, despite her boasting to Asael about his long-distance skill. Yet weak as he was, he'd grabbed her hand and gripped it hard to make sure she listened. Tell them you just tried to shift the strata and the thing popped up on its own, like a cork underwater. Even our own people will believe that. It's just another dead sieve artifact that doesn't make any sense. Nobody will question you about it if you don't give them a reason to. So don't talk about it. Not even to me. Which, of course, makes her want to talk about it even more. But the one time she tried after Baster recovered, he glared at her and said nothing until she finally took the hint and went to go do something else. And that pisses her off more than anything else. I'm going for a walk, she says finally and gets to her feet. Okay, 
says Alabaster, stretching and getting up. She hears his joints pop. I'll go with you. I didn't ask for company. No, you didn't. He's smiling at her again, but in that hard-edged way she's beginning to hate. But if you're going out alone, at night, in a strange calm, where someone's already tried to kill one of us, then you're rusting well going to have company. At this, Cyanite flinches. Oh, but that's the other subject they can't talk about. Not because Alabaster's forbidden it, but because neither of them knows enough to do more than speculate. Cyanite wants to believe that the simplest explanation is the most likely. Someone in the kitchen was incompetent. Alabaster has pointed out the flaw in this, however. No one else at the inn or in the city has gotten sick. Cyanite thinks there might be a simple explanation for this, too. Asael told the kitchen workers to contaminate only Alabaster's food. That's the kind of thing angry leaders tend to do, at least in all the stories about them, which abound with poisonings and convoluted indirect viciousness. Cyan prefers stories about resistance overcoming impossible odds, or breeders saving lives through clever political marriages and strategic reproduction, or strongbacks tackling their problems with good, honest violence. Alabaster, being Alabaster, seems to think there was more to his near-death brush. And Cyanite doesn't want to admit that he might be right. Fine, then, she says, and gets dressed. It's a pleasant evening. The sun's just setting as they walk down a sloping avenue that leads toward the harbor. Their shadows stretch long before them, and the buildings of Alia, which are mostly stuccoed, sandy pale in color, briefly bloom with deeper jewel tones of red and violet and gold. The avenue they're on intersects a meandering side street that ends at a small cove off the harbor's busier area. When they stop here to take in the view, Cyan can see a group of the calm's adolescents playing and laughing along the black sand beach. They're all lean and brown and healthy and obviously happy. Cyan finds herself staring and wondering if that is what it's like to grow up natural. Then the obelisk, which is easily visible at the end of the avenue they're standing on, where the thing hovers perhaps 10 or 15 feet above the harbor waves, emits another of the low, barely perceptible pulses that it's been spitting out since Cyan raised it. And that makes her forget about the kids. Something's wrong with that thing, Alabaster says, very softly. Cyanite looks at him, annoyed and on the brink of saying, what, now you want to talk about it? When she notices that he's not looking at it. He's scuffing the ground with one foot, his hands in his pockets, appearing, oh, Cyan almost laughs, appearing for the moment, like a bashful young man who's about to suggest something naughty to his pretty female companion. The facts that he is not young or bashful, and that it doesn't matter if she's pretty or he's naughty because they're already fucking aside. 
A casual observer would not realize he was paying any attention to the obelisk. Which abruptly makes cyanite realize, no one cesses its pulse but them. The pulse is not a pulse, exactly. It's not brief or rhythmic, more a momentary throb that she cesses now and again, at random and ominously like a toothache. But if the other people of the calm had cessed that last one, they wouldn't be laughing and playing and winding down comfortably at the end of a long golden day. They would all be out here watching this massive, looming thing, to which cyanide is increasingly beginning to apply the adjective dangerous in her head. Cyan takes a clue from Baster and reaches for his arm, cuddling close as if she actually likes him. She keeps her voice to a murmur, even though she has no clue who or what he's trying to conceal the conversation from. There are people out on the street as the city's business day winds down, but nobody's nearby or paying attention to them, for that matter. I keep waiting for it to rise, like the others. Because it's hanging far, far too close to the ground, or the water's surface, as it were. Every other obelisk sign has ever seen, including the amethyst that saved Alabaster's life, and which is still drifting a few miles offshore, floats amid the lowest layer of clouds or higher. It's listing to one side, too, like it's barely able to stay up at all. What? And she cannot help looking up at it, though Baster immediately squeezes her arm to make her look away again. But that brief glimpse was enough to confirm what he said. The obelisk is indeed listing, just a little, its top end tilted toward the south. It must wobble very slowly as it turns. The slant is so slight that she wouldn't have noticed it at all if they hadn't been standing on a street, surrounded by straight-walled buildings. Now she can't unsee it. Let's go this way, she suggests. They've lingered here too long. Alabaster obviously agrees, and they start down the side street to the cove, strolling casually. It's why they're keeping us here. Sion's not paying attention to him when he says this. In spite of herself, she's distracted by the beauty of the sunset and the long, elegant streets of the calm itself. And another couple passing on the sidewalk. The taller woman nods to them, even though both Sion and Baster are wearing their black uniforms. It's strange, that little gesture. And nice. Humanus is a marvel of human achievement, the pinnacle of ingenuity and engineering. If it lasts a dozen seasons, this paltry little coaster calm will never even come close to matching it. But in Eumenes, no one would ever have deigned to nod to a raga, no matter how pleasant the day. Then Alabaster's last words penetrate her ruminations. What? He keeps his pace easy, matching hers despite his naturally longer gait. We can't talk in the room. It's risky even to talk out here. But you wanted to know why they're keeping us here, telling us not to come back. That's why. That obelisk is failing. 
That much is obvious, but what's that got to do with us? You raised it. She scowls before she remembers to school her expression. It raised itself. I just moved all the crap that was holding it down and maybe woke it up. That her mind insists it was sleeping before is not something she's willing to question too deeply. And that's more control over an obelisk than anyone has ever managed in nearly 3,000 years of imperial history. Bastard shrugs a little. If I were a jumped-up little five-ring pedant reading a telegram about this, it's what I'd think, and it's how I'd react. By trying to control the person who can control that. His eyes flick toward the obelisk. But it's not the jumped-up pedants at the fulcrum we have to worry about. Cyan doesn't know what the rust he's on about. It isn't that his words don't ring true. She can completely imagine someone like Feldspar pulling something like this. But why? To reassure the local population? By keeping a ten-ringer on hand? The only people who know bastards here are a bunch of bureaucrats who are probably too busy dealing with the sudden influx of mests and tourists to care. To be able to do something, should the obelisk suddenly do something? That makes no sense. And who else is she supposed to worry about, unless... She frowns. You said something earlier. Something about connecting to an obelisk? What did that mean? And, and you did something that night. She throws an uneasy look at him, but he doesn't glare at her this time. He's gazing down at the cove as if entranced by the view, but his eyes are sharp and serious. He knows what she's talking about. She hesitates a moment more, then says, you can do something with those things, can't you? Oh, Earth, she's a fool. You can control them. Does the fulcrum know that? No. And you don't know it either. His dark eyes slide to hers for a moment, then away. Why are you being so... It's not even secretive. He's talking to her, but it's as if he suspects someone of listening to them somehow. No one could hear us in the room and she nods pointedly toward a gaggle of children running past, one of them jostling Alabaster and apologizing. The street's narrow. Apologizing? Really? You don't know that. The building's main support column is whole-hewn granite, didn't you notice? The foundation looks to be the same, if it sits directly on the bedrock. His expression grows momentarily uneasy, and then he blanks his face. What's that got to do with? And then she understands. Oh, oh, but no, that can't be right. You're saying someone could hear us through the walls? Through the stone itself? She's never heard of anything like that. It makes sense, of course, but it's how orogeny works. When Cyan is anchored in the earth, she can cess not only the stone that her awareness is tied to, but anything that touches it. 
even if she can't perceive the thing itself as with the obelisk. Still, to feel not just tectonic vibrations, but sound? It can't be true. She's never heard of a raga with that kind of fine sensitivity. He looks at her directly for a long moment. I can. When she stares back, he sighs. I always could. You can too, probably. It just isn't clear yet. It's just minute vibrations to you now. Around my eighth or ninth ring is when I started to distinguish patterns amid the vibrations. Details. She shakes her head. But you're the only ten ringer. Most of my children have the potential to wear ten rings. Cyanite flinches, suddenly remembering the dead child in the node station near Mehi. Oh. The fulcrum controls all the node maintainers. What if they have some way to force those poor damaged children to listen and to spit back what they listen to, like some kind of living telegraph receivers? Is that what he fears? Is the fulcrum like a spider, perching in Eumenes' heart and using the web of nodes to listen in on every conversation in the stillness? But she is distracted from these speculations by something that niggles at the back of her mind. Something Alabaster just said. His damn influence, making her question all the assumptions she's grown up with. Most of my children have the potential to wear ten rings, he'd said. But there are no other ten ringers in the fulcrum. Raga children are sent to the nodes only if they can't control themselves, aren't they? Oh, no. She decides not to mention this epiphany aloud. He pats her hand, perhaps play-acting again, perhaps really trying to soothe her. Of course he knows, probably better than she, what they've done to his children. Then he repeats, The seniors of the fulcrum aren't who we have to worry about. Who else could he mean? The seniors are a mess, granted. Cyan keeps an eye on their politics because one day she'll be among them, and it's important to understand who holds power and who only looks like they do. There are at least a dozen factions, along with the usual rogues, brown nosers and idealists, and those who would glass knife their own mothers to get ahead. But all at once, it occurs to Cyanite to consider who they answer to. The Guardians. Because no one would really trust a group of filthy ragas to manage their own affairs, any more than Shemshena would have trusted Misalem. No one in the Fulcrum talks about the Guardians' politics, probably because no one in the Fulcrum understands them. The Guardians keep their own counsel, and they object to inquiries vehemently. Not for the first time, Cyanite wonders, to whom? Do the guardians answer? As science considered this, they've reached the cove and stopped at its railed boardwalk. The avenue ends here, its cobbles vanishing beneath a drift of sand, and then the raised wooden walkway. Not far off, there's a different sandy beach from the one they saw earlier. Children run up and down the boardwalk steps, squealing in play. And beyond them, 
Cyan can see a gaggle of old women wading nude in the harbor's waters. She notices the man who sits on the railing a few feet down from where they stand, only because he's shirtless and because he's looking at them. The former gets her attention for a moment. Then she's polite and looks away, because alabaster's not much to look at, and it's been a while since she had sex she actually enjoyed. The latter is something she would ignore ordinarily, because in Yumaness, she gets stared at by strangers all the time. But she's standing at the railing with Baster, relaxed and more comfortable than she's been in a while, listening to the children play. It's hard to keep her mind on the cryptic stuff they're discussing. The politics of Yumaness seems so very far from here. Mysterious, but unimportant and untouchable, like an obelisk. But, but, she notices belatedly that Baster has gone stiff beside her. And although his face is turned toward the beach and the children, she can tell that he's not paying attention to them. That is when it finally occurs to her that people in Alia don't stare, not even at a couple of black jackets out for an evening stroll Asayal aside, most of the people she's met in this calm are too well-mannered for something like that. So she looks back at the man on the railing. He smiles at her, which is kind of nice. He's older, maybe by ten years or so, and he's got a gorgeous body. Broad shoulders, elegant deltoids under flawless skin, a perfectly tapered waist, burgundy pants. And the shirt that hangs over the railing beside him, which he has ostensibly taken off in order to soak up some of the sunlight, is also burgundy. Only belatedly does she notice the peculiar familiar buzz at the back of her sesapine that warns of a guardian's presence. Yours, asks Alabaster. Cyanite licks her lips. I was hoping he was yours. No. And then Alabaster makes a show of stepping forward to rest his hands against the railing, bowing his head as if he means to lean on it and stretch his shoulders. Don't let him touch you with his bare skin. This is a whisper. She barely catches it. And then Alabaster straightens and turns to the young man. Something on your mind, guardian? The guardian laughs softly and hops down from the railing. He's at least part coaster, all over brown and kinky-haired, a bit on the pale side, but aside from this, he fits right in among the citizens of Alia. Well, no, he blends in superficially. But there's that indefinable something about him that's in every guardian Cyanites had the misfortune to interact with. No one in Humanus ever mistakes a guardian for an origin, or for a still, for that matter. There's just something different about them, and everyone notices. Yes, actually, the guardian says. Alabaster ten ring, cyanite four ring. That alone makes cyanite grind her teeth. She would prefer the generic origin, if she has to be called anything besides her name. Guardians, of course, understand perfectly well the difference between a four-ringer and a ten-ringer. 
I am Edki Guardian Warrant. My, but you've both been busy. As we should be, says Alabaster, and Cyanide cannot help looking at him in surprise. He's tensed in a way she's never seen. The cords of his neck taut, his hands splayed and... Ready? Ready for what? She does not know why the word ready even occurred to her. At his sides. We've completed our assignment for the fulcrum, as you can see. Oh, indeed, a fine job. Ed Keek glances off then, almost casually toward that listing, throbbing accident of an obelisk. Cyanide is watching his face, however. She sees the guardian's smile vanish, as if it were never there. That can't be good. Would that you had done only the job you were told to do, however. Such a willful creature you are, Alabaster. Cyanide scowls. Even here she is condescended to. I did this job, Guardian. Is there some problem with my work? The Guardian turns to look at her, in surprise. And that's when Cyanide realizes she's made a mistake. A big one because his smile doesn't return. Did you know? Alabaster hisses an evil earth. She feels it when he stabs his awareness into the strata, because it goes so unbelievably deep. The strength of him makes her whole body reverberate, not just her sesapine. She can't follow it. He's past her range in the span of a breath, easily piercing to the magma, even though it's miles down. And his control of all that pure earth energy is perfect, amazing. He could shift a mountain with this easily. But why? The guardian smiles suddenly. Guardian Lachette sends her regards, Alabaster. While Cyanide is still trying to parse this, and the fact that Alabaster is about to fight a guardian, Alabaster stiffens all over. You found her? Of course. We must talk of what you did to her soon. Suddenly, Cyanite does not know when he drew it or where from. There is a black glass knife in his hand. Its blade is wide but ridiculously short, maybe only two inches in length, barely enough to be called a knife at all. What the rust is he going to do with that? Pair our nails? And why is he drawing a weapon on two imperial origins in the first place? Guardian, she tries. Maybe there's been some kind of misun- The Guardian does something. Cyanite blinks, but the tableau is as before. She and Alabaster face Edki on a boardwalk stark with shadows and bloody sunset light with children and old ladies playing beyond them. But something has changed. She's not sure what, until Alabaster makes a choking sound and lunges at her, knocking her to the ground a few feet away. How such a skinny man has the weight to throw her, Cyanite will never know. She hits the planks hard enough to jar the breath out of herself. Through a blur, she sees some of the children who had been playing nearby stop and stare. One of them laughs. Then she struggles up, furious, her mouth already opening to curse Alabaster to earth and back. 
but Alabaster's on the ground too, only a foot or two away. He's lying on his belly, his eyes fixed on her, and and he's making a strange sound. Not much of one. His mouth's open wide, but the noise that comes out of it is more like the squeak of a child's toy or a metalorist's air bladder. And he's shivering all over, as if he can't move more than that, which doesn't make sense because nothing's wrong with him. Cyan's not sure what to think until belatedly she realizes. He's screaming. Why did you think I would aim at her? Edkey is staring at Alabaster, and Cyanite shivers because the look on his face is gleeful. It is delighted, even as Alabaster lies there shuddering helplessly, with the knife that Edkey once held now buried in the hollow of Alabaster's shoulder. Cyan stares at it, stunned that she missed it before. It stands out starkly even against the black of Baster's tunic. You have always been a fool, Alabaster. And there is a new glass knife in Edki's hand now. This one is long and viciously narrow. A chillingly familiar poniard. Why? Sinite can't think. Her hands ache as she scrabbles backward along the boardwalk planks, trying to get to her feet and away all at once. Instinctively, she reaches for the earth beneath her, and that's when she finally realizes what the guardian has done. Because there's nothing in her that can reach. She cannot cess the earth past a few feet below her hands and backside. Nothing but sand and salty dirt and earthworms. There is an unpleasant ringing ache in her sesapine when she tries to reach farther. It's like when she hits her elbow and shuts off all the sensation from there to the tips of her fingers, like that part of her mind has gone to sleep. It's tingling, coming back. But for now, there's nothing there. She has heard Grit's whisper of this after lights out. All guardians are strange, but this is what makes them what they are. Somehow they can stop orogeny with a flick of their will. And some of them are especially strange, specialized to be stranger than the rest. Some of them do not have origin charges and are never allowed near untrained children because they are dangerous merely by proximity. These guardians do nothing but track down the most powerful rogue origins. And when they find them, well, Sinite never particularly wanted to know what they did before now. But it seems she's about to find out. Under fires. She's as numb to the earth as the most rust-brained elder. Is this what it's like for stills? Is this all they feel? She has envied their normalcy her whole life until now. But as Edkey walks toward her with the poniard ready, there is a tightness around his eyes, a grim set to his mouth, which makes her think of how she feels when she's had a bad headache. This is what makes her blurt, are, are you, uh, all right? She has no idea why she asks this. At this, Ed Key cocks his head. The smile returns to his face, gentle and surprised. How kind you are. I'm fine, little one, just fine. 
but he's still coming at her. She scrambles backward again, tries to get to her feet again, tries again to reach for power, and fails in all three efforts. Even if she could succeed, though, he's a guardian. It's her duty to obey. It's her duty to die if he wills it. This is not right. Please, she says, desperate, wild with it. Please, we haven't done anything wrong. I don't understand. I don't. You need not understand, he says, with perfect kindness. You need do only one thing. And then he lunges, aiming the poniard at her chest. Later, she will understand the sequence of events. Later, she will realize everything occurred in the span of a gasp. For now, however, it is slow. The passage of time becomes meaningless. She is aware only of the glass knife, huge and sharp, its facets gleaming in the fading dusk. It seems to come at her gradually, gracefully, drawing out her duty-bound terror. This has never been right. She's aware only of the gritty wood beneath her fingers and the useless pittance of warmth and movement that is all she can cess beneath that. Can't shift much more than a pebble with that. She is aware of alabaster, twitching because he is convulsing. How did she not realize this before? He is not in control of his own body. There is something about the glass knife in his shoulder that has rendered him helpless for all his power. And the look on his face is of helpless fear and agony. She becomes aware that she is angry, furious, duty be damned. What this guardian is doing, what all guardians do, is not right. And then, and then, and then, she becomes aware of the obelisk. Alabaster, twitching harder, opens his mouth wider, his eyes fixing on hers despite the uncontrollability of the rest of his flesh. The fleeting memory of his warning rings in her mind, though in that instant, she cannot recall the words. The knife is halfway to her heart. She is very, very aware of this. We are the gods in chains, and this is not rusting right. So she reaches again, not down, but up, not straight, but to the side. No, Alabaster is shaping his mouth to say through his twitches. And the obelisk draws her into its shivering, jittering, blood-red light. She is falling up. She is being dragged up and in. She is completely out of control. Oh, Father Earth, Alabaster was right. This thing is too much for her. And she screams because she has forgotten that this obelisk is broken. It hurts as she grinds across the zone of damage, each of the cracks seeming through her and shattering her and splitting her into pieces until until she stops, hovering and curled in agony amid the cracked redness. It isn't real. It cannot be real. She feels herself also lying on sandy wooden boards with fading sunlight on her skin. She does not feel the guardian's glass knife, or at least not yet. But she is here too, and she sees, those sasapine are not eyes, and the sight 
is all in her imagination. The stone eater at the core of the obelisk floats before her. It's her first time being close to one. All the books say that stone eaters are neither male nor female, but this one resembles a slender young man formed of white-veined black marble, clothed in smooth robes of iridescent opal. It's his limbs, marbled and polished, splay as if frozen in mid-fall. His head is flung back, his hair loose and curling behind him in a splash of translucence. The cracks spread over his skin, and the stiff illusion of his clothing into him, through him. Are you all right, she wonders. And she has no idea why she wonders it, even as she herself cracks apart. His flesh is so terribly fissured. She wants to hold her breath, lest she damage him further. But that is irrational, because she isn't here, and this isn't real. She is on a street about to die. But this stone eater has been dead for an age of the world. The stone eater closes his mouth and opens his eyes, and lowers his head to look at her. I'm fine, he says. Thank you for asking. And then the obelisk shatters. Fifteen. You're among friends. You reach the place with all the origins, and it's not at all what you were expecting. It's abandoned, for one thing. It's not a calm for another. Not in any real sense of the word. The road gets wider as you approach, flattening into the land until it vanishes completely near the middle of town. A lot of calms do this, get rid of the road to encourage travelers to stop and trade. But those calms usually have some place to trade in. And you can't see anything here that looks like a storefront or marketplace, or even an inn. Worse, it doesn't have a wall. Not a stone pile, not a wire fence, not even a few sharpened sticks jabbed into the ground around the town perimeter. There's nothing to separate this community from the land around it which is forested and covered in scraggly underbrush that makes perfect cover for an attacking force. But in addition to the town's apparent abandonment and lack of a wall, there are other oddities. Lots of them, you notice, as you and the others look around. There aren't enough fields, for one. A calm that can hold a few hundred people, as this one seems to be able to do should have more than the single stripped bare hectare of scraggly choya stalks that you noticed on the way in. It should have a bigger pasture than the small plot of dried-out green you see near the town center. You don't see a storehouse either, elevated or otherwise. Okay, maybe that's hidden. Lots of comms do that. But then you notice that all the buildings are in wildly varied styles. This one tall and city narrow. That one wide and flat to the ground like something from a warmer climate. Yet another that looks to be a sod-covered dome, half set into the earth like your old house in Terimo. There's a reason most comms pick a style and stick to it. Uniformity sends a visual message. It warns potential attackers 
that the comms members are equally unified in purpose and the willingness to defend themselves. This comms visual message is confused. Uncaring, maybe. Something you can't interpret. Something that makes you more nervous than if the calm had been teeming with hostile people instead. You and the others proceed warily, slowly, through the empty streets of the town. Tonki's not even pretending to be at ease. She's got twin glass knives in her hands, stark and black-bladed. You don't know where she's been hiding them, although that skirt of hers could conceal an army. Hoa seems calm, but who can really tell what Hoa feels? He seemed calm when he turned a Kurkuza into a statue, too. You don't pull your knife. If there really are lots of ragas here, there's only one weapon that will save you, if they take exception to your presence. You sure this is the right place, you say to Hoa? Hoa nods emphatically which means that there are lots of people here. They're just hiding. But why? And how could they have seen you coming through the ashfall? Can't have been gone long, Tonki mutters. She's staring at a dead garden near one of the houses. It's been picked over by travelers or the former inhabitants. Anything edible among its dried stalks gone. These houses look in good repair. And that garden was healthy until a couple of months ago. You're momentarily surprised to realize you've been on the road for two months. Two months since Uche. A little less since the ash started to fall. Then, swiftly, you focus on the here and now. Because after the three of you stop in the middle of town and stand there a while in confusion, the door of one of the nearby buildings opens and three women come out on the porch. The first one you pay attention to has a crossbow in her hands. For a minute, that's all you see, same as that last day in Terimo. But you don't immediately ice her, because the crossbow isn't aimed at you. She's just got it leaned against one arm, and although there's a look on her face that warns you she has no problem using it, you also think, she won't do it without provocation. Her skin is almost as white as Hoa's, although thankfully her hair is simply yellow and her eyes are a nice normal brown. She's petite, small-boned and poorly fleshed, and narrow-hipped in a way that would prompt the average equatorial to make snide remarks about bad breeding. An Antarctic, probably from a calm too poor to feed its kids well, She's a long way from home. The one who draws your eye next is nearly her opposite, and quite possibly the most intimidating woman you've ever seen. It has nothing to do with her looks. Those are just sunset, the expected poof of slate gray hair, and the expected deep brown skin, and the expected size and visible strength of build. Her eyes are shockingly black. Shocking not because black eyes are particularly rare, but because she's wearing smoky gray eyeshadow and dark eyeliner to accentuate them further. Makeup while the world is ending? You don't know whether to be awed or affronted by that. 
and she wields those black-clad eyes like piercing weapons, holding each of your gazes at eye point for an instant, before finally examining the rest of your gear and clothing. She's not quite as tall as Sunsets like their women, shorter than you, but she's wearing a thick brown fur vest that hangs to her ankles. The vest sort of makes her look like a small yet fashionable bear. There's something in her face, though, that makes you flinch a little. You're not sure what it is. She's grinning, showing all her teeth. Her gaze is steady, neither welcoming nor uneasy. It's the steadiness that you recognize, finally, from seeing it a few times before. Confidence. That kind of utter unflinching embrace of self is common in stills but you weren't expecting to see it here. Because she's a raga, of course. You know your own when you cess it, and she knows you. All right, the woman says, putting her hands on her hips. How many in your party, three? I assume you don't want to be parted. You sort of stare at her for a breath or two. Hello? You say at last, uh, Ika, she says. You realize it's a name. Then she adds, Ika Roga Kastrima, welcome, and you are. You blurt, Raga. You use this word all the time, but hearing it like this as a use name emphasizes its vulgarity. Naming yourself Raga is like naming yourself Pile of Shit. It's a slap in the face. It's a statement of what you can't tell. That, uh, isn't one of the seven common use names, says Tonky. Her voice is wry. You think she's trying to make a joke to cover nerves. Or even one of the five lesser accepted ones. Let's call this one new. Ika's gaze flickers over each of your companions, assessing, then back to you. So your friends know what you are. Startled, you look at Tonki, who's staring at Ika the way she stares at Hoa when Hoa isn't hiding behind you, as if Ika is a fascinating new mystery to maybe get a blood sample from. Tonki meets your gaze for a moment with such an utter lack of surprise or fear that you realize Ika's right. She probably figured it out some time ago. Raga as a use name. Tonki's thoughtful as she focuses on Ika again. So many implications to that one. And Kastrima. That's not one of the Imperial Registry listed Somidlat's calm names either. Although I'll admit I might just have forgotten it. There's hundreds after all. I don't think I have, though. I've got a good memory. This a new calm? Ika inclines her head, partly in affirmation and partly in ironic acknowledgement of Tonki's fascination. Technically, this version of Kastrima has been around for maybe 50 years. It isn't really a calm at all officially. Just another lodging stop for people heading along the Yumenes Mesamera and Yumenes Keteke routes. We get more business than most because there are mines in the area. She pauses, then, gazing at Hoa, 
and for a moment her expression tightens. You look at Howard too, puzzled, because granted he's strange looking, but you're not sure what he's done to merit that kind of tension from a stranger. That's when you finally notice that Hoa has gone utterly still, and his little face has sharpened from its usual cheerfulness into something taut and angry and almost feral. He's glaring at Ika, like he wants to kill her. No, not Ika. You follow his gaze to the third member of Ika's party, who stayed slightly behind the other two till now, and whom you haven't really paid attention to because Ika's so eye-catching. A tall, slender woman. And then you stop frowning, because all at once you're not sure about that designation. The female part, sure. Her hair is Antarctic lank and deep red in color, decoratively long, framing features that are finely lined. It's clear she means to be red as a woman, though she's only wearing a long, loose, sleeveless gown that should be far too thin for the cooling air. But her skin. You're staring, it's rude. Not the best way to start things off with these people, but you can't help it. Her skin. It's not just smooth, it's glossy, sort of, almost polished. She's either got the most amazing complexion you've ever seen, or or that isn't skin. The red-haired woman smiles, and the sight of her teeth confirms it, even as you shiver to your bones. Hoa hisses like a cat in reply to that smile. And as he does so, finally, terribly, you see his teeth clearly for the first time. He never eats in front of you, after all. He never shows them when he smiles. They're colored in where hers are transparent, enamel white as a kind of camouflage. But not so different from the red-haired woman's in shape. Not squared, but faceted. Diamondine. Evil earth, mutters Tonki. You feel that she speaks for the both of you. Ika glances sharply at her companion. No. The red-haired woman's eyes flick toward Ika. No other part of her moves, the rest of her body remaining stock still. Statue still. It can be done without harm to you or your companions. Her mouth doesn't move either. The voice sounds oddly hollow, echoing up from somewhere inside her chest. I don't want anything done. Ika puts her hands on her hips. This my place, and you've agreed to abide by my rules. Back off. The blonde woman shifts a little. She doesn't bring the crossbow up, but you think she's ready to do so at a moment's notice. For whatever good that will do. The red-haired woman doesn't move for a moment, and then she closes her mouth to hide those awful diamond teeth. As she does this, you realize several things at once. The first is that she wasn't actually smiling. It was a threat display, like the way a kukuza draws back its lips to bare its fangs. The second is that with her mouth closed and that placid expression, she looks far less unnerving. The third realization you have is that Hoa was making the same threat display. But he relaxes and closes his mouth, 
as the red-haired woman eases back. Ika exhales. She focuses on you again. I think, perhaps, she says, you'd better come inside. I'm not sure that's the best idea in the world, Tonki says to you pleasantly. Neither am I, says the blonde woman, glaring at Yika's head. You sure about that, Yik? Yika shrugs, though you think she's not nearly as nonchalant as she seems. When am I sure about anything? But it seems like a good idea for now. You're not sure you agree, still. Strange calm or not, mythical creatures or not, unpleasant surprises or not, you came here for a reason. Did a man and a girl come through here, you ask? Father and daughter, the man would be about my age, the girl eight. Two months, you've almost forgotten. Nine years old, she, you falter, stutter, she... Looks like me. Yika blinks, and you realize you've genuinely surprised her. Clearly, she was braced for entirely different questions. No, she says, and... And there's a sort of skip inside you. It hurts to hear that simple no. It hits like a hatchet blow, and the salt in the wound is Yika's look of honest perplexity. That means she's not lying. You flinch and sway with the impact, with the death of all your hopes. It occurs to you through a haze of floating not-quite-thought that you've been expecting something since Hoa told you about the place. You're beginning to think you would find them here, have a daughter again, be a mother again. Now you know better. Is, is soon? Hands grasp your forearms. Who's Tonki? Her hands are rough with hard living. You hear her calluses rasp on the leather of your jacket. Isun, oh, Russ, don't. You've always known better. How dare you expect anything else? You're just another filthy, rusty-souled Raga. Just another agent of the evil earth. Just another mistake of sensible breeding practices. Just another mislaid tool. You should never have had children in the first place. And you shouldn't have expected to keep them once you did. And why is Tonki pulling on your arms? Because you've lifted your hands to your face. Oh, and you've burst into tears. You should have told Jija before you ever married him, before you slept with him, before you even looked at him and thought, maybe, which you had no right to ever think. Then if the urge to kill a Raga had hit him, he would have inflicted it on you, not Uche. You're the one who deserves to die, after all, 10,000 times the population of two calms. Also, you might be screaming a little. You shouldn't be screaming. You should be dead. You should have died before your children. You should have died at birth and never lived to bear them. You should have, you should have, Something sweeps through you. It feels a little like the wave of force that came down from the north and which you shunted away on that day the world changed. Or maybe a little like the way you felt when you walked into the house after a tiring day and saw your boy lying on the floor. A waft of potential, 
passing on, unutilized. The brush of something intangible, but meaningful, there and gone. As shocking by its absence as its existence in the first place. You blink and lower your hands. Your eyes are blurry and they hurt. The heels of your hands are wet. Ika's off the porch and standing in front of you, just a couple of feet away. She's not touching you. But you stare at her anyway, realizing she just did something. Something you don't understand. Orogeny, certainly. But deployed in a way you've never experienced before. Hey, she says. There's nothing like compassion on her face. Still, her voice is softer as she speaks to you. Though maybe that's only because she's closer. Hey, you okay now? You swallow. Your throat hurts. No, you say. That word again. You almost giggle, but you swallow, and the urge vanishes. No, but I'm... I can keep it together. Ika nods slowly. See that you do. Beyond her, the blonde woman looks skeptical about the possibility of this. Then with a heavy sigh, Ika turns to Tonki and Hoa, the latter of whom looks deceptively calm and normal now. Normal by Hoa standards, anyway. All right, then, she says. Here's how it is. You can stay or you can go. If you decide to stay, I'll take you into the calm. But you need to know up front, Castrima is something unique. We're trying something very different here. If this season turns out to be short, then we're going to be up a lava lake when Sansa comes down on us. But I don't think this season will be short. She glances at you, sidelong, not quite for confirmation. Confirmation's not the word for it, since there was never doubt. Any Raga knows it like they know their own name. This season won't be short, you agree. Your voice is hoarse, but you're recovering. It will last decades. Ika lifts an eyebrow. Yeah, she's right. You're trying to be gentle for the sake of your companions, and they don't need gentleness. They need truth. Centuries. Even that's an understatement. You're pretty sure this one will last at least a thousand years, maybe a few thousand. Tonki frowns a little. Well, everything does point to either a major iparogenic deformation, or possibly just a simple disruption of astastasy throughout the entire plate network. But the amount of orogenesis needed to overcome that much inertia is prohibitive. Are you sure? You're staring at her, grief momentarily forgotten. So's Yika and the blonde woman. Tonki grimaces in irritation, glowering particularly at you. Oh, for us' sake, stop acting all surprised. The secrets are done now, right? You know what I am, and I know what you are. Do we have to keep pretending? You shake your head, though you're not really responding to her question. You decide to answer her other question instead. I'm sure, you say. Centuries, maybe more. 
Tonky flinches. No calm has stores enough to last that long, not even Eumenes. Eumenes's fabled vast store caches are slag in a lava tube somewhere. Part of you mourns the waste of all that food. Part of you figures, well, that much quicker and more merciful an end for the human race. When you nod, Tonki falls into a horrified silence. Ika looks from you to Tonki and apparently decides to change the subject. There are 22 origins here, she says. You flinch. I expect there will be more as time passes. You all right with that? She looks at Tonki in particular. As subject changes go, it's perfect for distracting everyone. How? asks Tonki at once. How are you making them come here? Never mind that. Answer the question. You could have told Yika not to bother. I'm fine with it, Tonki says immediately. You're surprised she's not visibly salivating. So much for her shock over the inevitable death of humanity. All right, Ika turns to Hoa. And you, there are a few others of your kind here too. More than you think, Hoa says very softly. Yeah, well, Nika takes this with remarkable aplomb. You heard how it is. If you want to stay here, you follow the rules. No fighting, no. She waggles her fingers and bares her teeth. This is surprisingly comprehensible. And you do as I say, got it? Hoa cocks his head a little, his eyes glittering in pure menace. It's as shocking to see as his diamond teeth. You'd started thinking of him as a rather sweet creature, if a bit eccentric. Now you're not sure what to think. You don't command me. Ika, to your greater amazement, leans over and puts her face right in front of his. Let me put it this way, she says. You can keep doing what you've obviously been doing, trying to be as avalanche subtle as your kind ever gets, or I can start telling everyone what all of you are really up to. And Hoa flinches. His eyes, only his eyes, flick toward the not-woman on the porch. The one on the porch smiles again, though she doesn't show her teeth this time, and there's a rueful edge to it. You don't know what any of this means, but Hoa seems to sag a little. Very well, he says to Yika with an odd formality. I agree to your terms. Yika nods and straightens, letting her gaze linger on him for a moment longer before she turns away. What I was going to say before your little uh, moment was that we've taken in a few people, she says to you. She says this over her shoulder as she turns and walks back up the steps of the house. No men traveling with girls, I don't think. But other travelers looking for a place, including some from Sebak Cortent. We adopted them if we thought they were useful. It's what any smart calm does at times like these. Kicking out the undesirable, 
taking in those with valuable skills and attributes. The comms that have strong leaders do this systematically, ruthlessly, with some degree of cold humanity. Less well-run comms do it just as ruthlessly, but more messily, like the way Terimo got rid of you. Gija's just a stone napper, useful, but napping's not exactly a rare skill. Nasun, though, is like you and Yika, and for some reason, the people of this calm seem to want Argens around. I want to meet those people, you say. There's a slim chance that Jija or Nasun is in disguise, or that someone else might have seen them on the road, or that, well, it really is a slim chance. You take it, though. She's your daughter. You'll take anything to find her. All right, then. Ika turns and beckons. Come on in, and I'll show you a marvel, or three. As if she hasn't already done so. But you move to follow her, because neither myths nor mysteries can hold a candle to the most infinitesimal spark of hope. The body fades. A leader who will last relies on more. From Tablet 3, Structures, Verse 2.